All right. Here we go. Quiet. Roll up. Hello and welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of today and yesterday, and put them all to some sort of context. See it across the microphone from me as film buff online, editor-in-chief, Rick Dees. Rich Dees, no, that's yes. what I'm going to say. Oh, you know I hate that. And seated across the, the microphone from me is Film Buff Online contributing editor, Natasha Bogutsky. Thank you, Rich. How's it going, Natasha? Disco, disco, oh, duck. <laughs> oh, man. That is the bane of my existence since <laughs> the damn song came out in, what, 77 or whatever. And if... I swear, I don't care if he's 107 at the time. If I meet Rick Dees, I'm going to punch him right in the nose. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've got uh, my admission to uh, plotting grievous bodily harm to an, uh, to somebody on Rick record, how's it going, Natasha? <laughs> it's going fine. This week was boring as hell. Um, and there isn't really a lot in the way of... You know, um... exciting news. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It has been kind of a a silent week. I was a little excited that um, they announced they're working on a new Master and Commander film, but it's going to be a prequel, so oh. we're not going to get you know the cast we saw how many years ago. You saw my eyes light yes, up, and then I... you had to shoot me in yeah. the heart. <laughs> I am so sorry. Yeah, uh... I was like, what? Oh, and then it's a prequel. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. We can't have actors who are now fifteen years older coming back to play characters fifteen years younger than previously. I guess is the problem. But it's Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hey, you know what is getting a sequel? What? Cruella apparently did uh, well enough at the box office and through the uh, premium subscription uh, at Disney Plus that the movie's getting a, a sequel. They're developing it already, as reported by The Hollywood Reporter. You're thinking about this, aren't you? It doesn't need one. It was a perfect standalone film just by itself. I know that. You know that. A lot of people know that. The accountants at Disney, however... Say, let's make more money off of this money. Yes. It's there, an investment. It's, it's all about, you know, capitalizing your IP, unfortunately. You can have good art, like Cruella is, but at the same time, you know, it's going to be looked at by certain people in the company as, okay, we've made money. We made a good movie. That's great. Can we do this again with this thing? People seem to like it. Let's get more of their money over it. And that's just the frisson of uh, the artistic side of cinema and the business side of cinema, unfortunately. How does that work if, say, your lead actor doesn't want to return? Maybe you recast. And um, if you don't want to recast or what have you, then you don't do the project. So if Emma Stone were to say, you know what? I think we're good, folks. 
I mean, she's been attached to that for four or five years. Mm-hmm. After a while, it it felt, and that's the beauty of her performance in it, it felt like all the frustrations of four years worth of development, five years worth of development, culminating in this beautiful project that doesn't need anything else to it. No, no, not at all. And as an actor, I would at this point say... I gave the best performance for this character that I could give. I developed mm-hmm. it from scratch. I, I've worked on it for so long. And I'm happy with this. I don't need to come back to this. So they must be offering her some serious lettuce. Yeah, the the Disney dump trucks are backing up at uh, the Stone residence right now. Yeah. And just offloading... When she was talking to Variety with Emma Thompson, there was a little bit of um, a little bit of exhaustion when she mentioned that she had been attached to it for four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes me feel like she may not want to put herself through that again. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a long time, and um, you discussed once before with me that Cruella is supposed to be what 2021 20, somewhere timeline. in there it, it felt like yeah yeah and like late teens very early 20s at best yeah and she's um and she definitely was playing down in age mm-hmm. if it took four to five years to develop the first Cruella where is Emma going to be that when the next one is ready to 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 go I tend to think that they will not take four to five years to develop a sequel. I think they'll fast track that and really, you know, hammer it home, make it a priority. Um, Craig Gillespie, the director, is coming back. I believe the screenwriter, whose name is eluding me, is also going to be coming back for this. So I think if they already have, like, a story idea, you know, they're kind of focused already. I would hope so, but... um... Maleficent, we knew Maleficent was going to be getting a sequel, and it still took almost four years. True, true. Um, now, we don't know, though, was it all script development that caused the delay? Was it finding time in Angelina Jolie's schedule? Hmm. Um, which is always a big uh, possibility. Um, I would think here, Emma Stone might be... Uh, in, in a place where Disney has her in first position. So if they want to schedule this, other things would have to take second place to that. I don't know exactly how that business end would work. I have a few ideas, and I don't know what factors would be in play. So, it, I mean, they could be fast-tracking it to have it out in two years. Well, let's hope that with everyone returning, that they can at least fix what's going on with the costume designer. <laughs> Because she deserves third billing on this film. True. And actually, I was going to segue. I know what you want to talk about. I was going to segue into that, though, with this question. Mm -hmm. Since this was kind of like mid to late 70s punk. Yeah. If the sequel takes place, say, two or three years later, um, that kind of almost puts us into very early new wave, the new romantic era that spawned bands like Adam and the Ants and uh, things like that. Do you want to see them start doing stuff like that in the fashion design too? 
what year would you want to like drop a sequel into at this point? That's a good question because we're starting to segue out of glam rock and get also into new wave. Yeah, well, you know, uh, punk was a uh, reaction to like glam rock and big stadium mm-hmm. rock. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, the kind of that underground evolution of music, and this is me drawing on my years of writing about music and stuff. Uh, I can see, you know, punk into new wave, which would be fun from that aspect. Um, however, as you said, they definitely need to... <laughs> Uh, fix a few things with the costume designers and the costume designing guild. Actually, it sounds like. Um, do you want to? No, go ahead. Fill that in. No, go ahead. I'm thinking about something. You, okay, you filled it. Okay. Uh, so basically, this past week, after Cruella did fairly well at the box office last weekend and was receiving a lot of rave reviews, uh, the costume designer for the film spoke out and was very upset that there is a spinoff line of clothing inspired by and i'm using air quotes here by the movie and her universe for hot topic um i'm not sure if it was her universe or not i think it might have been though her universe partners with almost every major disney live action release including marvel okay then then for the sake of argument i will go along with that then um but she was very upset that you know so much of this was based on her work she felt uh, that she deserved a portion of the profit. A, uh, uh, you know, she developed. She deserved compensation for that work that was now going on to an ancillary market. Uh, the way you know actors receive residuals for their performance when the films themselves are sold to cable and do reruns and sell Blu-rays and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it brings up an interesting thing of how a lot of those crafts guilds, like costume design, production design, uh, just don't get any kind of ancillary compensation from their work when that work is capitalized upon by the studio. For example, Ralph McQuarrie, great concept artist, developed the entire look for Star Wars developed you know what an x-wing you know roughly looks like developed you know what darth vader looks like do you think he saw a nickel from every single darth vader thing oh no it wasn't manufactured i'm sorry it wasn't her universe it was rag and bone okay okay to uh to set the record straight good thank you um but do you think ralph mcquarrie saw a nickel from having designed Darth Vader and every stupid thing Darth Vader was on for no. the last 40 years? God, no. No. So, do you think he probably was entitled to it? Yes. I certainly would say so. You know, the man defined the visual look of Star Wars. He, I'm sure he died, you know, a fairly financially comfortable man. He should have died a stinking filthy rich man. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just where my brain is on that. Your thoughts? No, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I'm still over here thinking about that question that you posed. Oh, what year? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I don't think New Wave has enough edge for Corella. 
what I would like to see them do, and as I was taking a look at some of the like the ones done for Glenn Close in the '96 version, oh, those costumes deserve a lot more love than they were given. Because there's this one point where there's like this beautiful hat and uh, she had this huge fur muff with tassels that dragged down to the ground. I was just like, and these pointed curved shoulders. I was just like, holy crap. Um, (laughs) It was very sculptured. Mm -hmm. And if that's one, there's one thing I've noticed even within the punk side of the costumes that they did is as she got closer and closer to the end, they became more sculptured and more tighter lines and sharper points, but you know, exaggerated, but still under character herself became more in focus. Yes. And, um, the rest of the 80s goes a little off the, the tracks. Yeah, I, you know, that's the decade of my youth. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, after about 86, once we started migrating towards like raggedy jeans and uh, things like that as, you know, like more like hair metal started to take over and pop music and stuff like that. That's the kind of part where I started to check out and I just developed my own style. Of course, I was also like junior, senior in high school going into college. So that's, you know, where I could, you know, that's where one starts to develop one's own style anyways. I mean, yeah, but at the exact same time, she cooks up clothes for the elite, not for the the person with the street style. I mean, she may have at one point when she could not afford to, to make Haute couture. Um, and now oh, it, she can. So where does she... Has she already turned from being someone who would just make things out of the rags to being the... <laughs> I would say she has. Her last few costumes at the end of the movie, I definitely say she's gone from the punk to... Definitely more. Help me out here, Rich. You know what I'm. I'm trying to say. Um, it's, it's to an upper class kind of a look. Yeah. Okay. Because punk has a certain aesthetic of DIY. Yeah. And it's, which is born out of I don't want to say poverty, but you know, being lower income, not having a lot of money, not having a lot of resources, and then taking what you do have though, and being as artistic with that as you can and it works as well because the when we see her getting out of the car at the mansion at the end her outfit was this white shirt but then it was like patched over here with like patent leather Mm -hmm. so um it was like a half and half look that still had like this diy but definitely in a way that made you think no she didn't just diy that (laughs) Which I think is what elevates it from just being street style to couture. Um, is whether or not it lo- has the look, but it's done with better fabrics mm-hmm. and uh, better tailoring as well. In New Wave, I, I think, no, when you start getting the hair bands in, no, there's nothing really there. But if she's cooking things up for like Wall Street, they were a little. 
I don't want to say more conservative in their looks, but they can start making a segue between the two Cruella movies, the origin story with Emma Stone and what Glenn Close turned in to be in the mid nineties. You could start heading towards that mm -hmm. a little bit more. Okay. Um, just a question that just popped into my head. Do you actually make the sequel more of a retelling of 101 Dalmatians at this point? Or do you wait, make that the third movie? Do you just keep leading people closer and closer to 201 Dalmatians without actually ever doing it? I Which almost I hope they don't touch 101 Dalmatians. I'm I'm a half of a mind that yeah, I agree with you. I there. like that these are leads ups, and then then if you want to see 101 Dalmatians, go watch Glenn Close. At the on the other hand, though, I'm partly of the because it's also that, a big year jump as well. It's like 20 some years. Yeah, but makeup does, or not, it, I would yeah. I wouldn't want to see. Yeah, it's already been. I mean, done there the there are there. there are I think issues with trying to draw connective tissue between what Emma Stone was doing and what Glenn Close is doing. But, you know, making these like an actual canonical uh, prequel to the 96 mm -hmm. live action film. I don't think that was their intention. I think it's just a prequel in general yeah. to that story. It's almost an entirely Not different one specific story. iteration thereof. Yeah. But, speaking of uh, the original... The other night I read you <laughs> a synopsis oh God. of the barking starlight or the starlight barking, excuse me, <laughs> which is the um the official literary sequel to 101 Dalmatians by the original author. And well, how, would you, how would you surmise it? I wouldn't. I would tell people Pull it up on Wikipedia right now and read it. But why? Because it's insane. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I'm not even going to tell you what's in it because it's it's not you something. You won't believe us. No, you won't. One, you won't believe us. And two, it is something I think that should be experienced, not told to. <laughs> like you actually read me the entire Wikipedia summary mm -hmm. on that. And you just watched my eyes bog out of my head. <laughs> that I, I almost should have waited and just sprung it on you today. today. Oh my god! And and had a camera running, <laughs> <laughs> a video podcast extra or something. <laughs> we don't even video podcast. I we know, keep saying I we know. need the video podcast. We got to we got to figure that out at some point. I think you're just but worried that, uh, it's gonna be an editing bitch. I'm just worried that I'm gonna have to keep my apartment really clean for that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you said you did some cleaning today. I don't see it. Ouch. That's <laughs> that's ouch. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, it's it's an incredible storyline. And once you do read it, though, you'll be like, yeah, there's no way they could have ever ever conceivably made this a movie. No. But it I also want to. I really, <laughs> I really want to see somebody try though, because it's gonna. It would be a spectacular disaster. But half of me is like, fucking go for it. You know, throw seventy million dollars at an animated version of this and see what the fuck happens. I would really, actually, kind of be excited by seeing that. 
I don't know why. I think I think seeing something that is hard to adapt and have it having it fail spectacularly is a much more interesting experience with a movie than watching a movie with a safe story and it's done with stars uh, that feel very safe at the box office and it's oh that was a perfectly fine film everybody did their th- you know like a, a Nicholas Sparks film yeah it's it's has a certain amount of audience you know everybody's gonna show up it's it's safe it's a safe bet for a studio I would love to see a studio adapt something like like this which is like totally bonkers and then go yeah let's see what happens in the marketplace with this and even if it were to fail spectacularly that's far more interesting to me than the next Nicholas Sparks notebook adaptation that's that's my ick <laughs> I'm not even I'm not even going to move when I do that I just open my mouth and let a sound fall out <laughs> it makes me want to puke like that three to four foot long black snake that was crossing the road as I was driving over here. I was just like, you don't like snakes. I'm going to throw something at you. I'm not referencing. Ra- well, okay. Yes, I am referencing Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Cause you're going to see it this fucking week. Yes. Uh, brand new 4k, uh, restoration of it's making the rounds <laughs> and, um, trying to carve out, couple of hours to sneak off to the movie theater to see it because it's one of my favorite films so i always do try to see it at a movie theater when it's showing nearby (sighs) we're not getting into this conversation again i'm sorry i know i know i know you want to and i am not letting you (laughs) kind of looking at the uh the time here and i'm thinking actually that uh we should wrap this portion of the show up take a short break and get into another girl-powered uh, film? Yeah. Uh, Woo! This week, our retro review is on the 2001 German film, Run, Lola, Run. And we'll be right back in just a moment. Every day we make thousands of decisions that affect our lives in ways that we don't even know, realize, or understand. Every action or every hesitation before an action can cause a different chain of possibilities to unfold as chaos theory throws people off onto various new life paths at the slightest provocation. That is the concept that German director Tom Tickwer was exploring in his film Run Lola Run, a high-octane thriller Tickwer tells his simple story three times, each time having his titular heroine making choices that will affect her ability to save her boyfriend from a fateful encounter with gangsters to whom he owes money. From virtually the moment it premiered at the 1998 edition of the Venice Film Festival, Run Lola Run has been a favorite of critics and genre fans alike for the stylish way that Tickwer explores his themes of free will versus determination in an action movie setting. So, Natasha, mm-hmm. since this is the first time you've seen Run, Lola, Run, yeah, what were your initial first impressions of the movie? 
hold on. I'm going to pull it up on my phone because I was texting you through it. And I said, I'm 20 seconds in the run, roll, run. And just the credits are giving me anxiety. <laughs> I remember when you messaged me that, yes. And I think the next day after I finished watching it, I told you it was one of those movies that you can't tell if it's going to give you a panic attack or an adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's very uh, indicative of what uh, director Tom Twyker was going for. Yeah. He was definitely trying to keep your your you high and involved in the anxiety of the ticking clock is prevalent here. Mm-hmm. And he lets that clock run out three times on I it. know. You know, and I think what's great is, and um, okay, I guess I'm going to just have to say this. If you haven't seen Run, Lola, Run, go watch it and then come back because even just the first third of the movie, there's things we're going to be talking about that you shouldn't have spoiled. Just go see the movie if you haven't already and then come back. Okay, you're back. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> um, just when you get through the, you know, we're obviously the movie's about her. She, Her name's in the title. And right when you get through the you know, the what turns out to be the ending of that first time they go through these events with her getting shot. It comes as a shock mm-hmm. because you're like, hey, why did they just kill, kill the title character? Yeah, the lead character here. Where does this movie go? And it does exactly what you never probably would have guessed. It just rewinds it, starts over, and says, okay, what if one little bit of chance were to happen differently to this character, mm-hmm. what kind of uh, new path does that set them down? It's. I would like to say it has a Groundhog Day idea to it without it being Groundhog Day. It's more like a video game. Okay. Okay. That That's a great analogy and one I don't think I've ever thought of simply because I'm not a, a gamer and I know you play far more video games than I do. But yeah, you're right. You know, you uh, get to a certain point. It's straight down to a costume. I mean, think about how Lara Croft is usually seen. Uh-huh. Cargo pants, t-shirt, utility belt, boots. It's straight down to even that. Okay. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly, yeah, I'm, I'm just really like marinating in that thought for a moment because I really <laughs> like it. It's something I never thought of. Um, it's great. I like it because... You know, the video game analogy implies that the there's a player who has the power to choose the path, and they're the ones making decisions. I've always looked at this movie mm-hmm. as random shit happens as you're trying to get something done, and that is going to push you and pull you in different, sometimes not very... Uh, recognizable ways and sometimes very largely recognizable ways along different paths to what you're hoping your ultimate goal is. And just her, you know, arriving in a place a few seconds before or after, such as the... The bank. The bank or the gentleman, you know, pulling out of the alley in his car. Mm-hmm. Um, 
ultimately that's kind of uh, how does he hit the other car coming down the street? Is he going to T-bone it or is he just going to clip it, clip the back's end? Uh, that... Or is she going to miss him all together? Yes. And it's interesting how that, once we hit the third time through the cycle, is shown how this, this guy who we just thought was a random person actually links up to her dad. Yeah. And if the first two things had happened then that meeting with dad never happens in the third third cycle and ultimately for me it's a movie about chance happenstance and pure dumb luck and i was thinking about you you screw up you can restart like in a video game mhm I, I Until maybe you run out of your lives. Yes. Maybe I'm just looking at it because it's like, oh, it's the Germans and they're just talking about the random chaoticness of the universe. And <laughs> which, which feels very nihilistic. Um, very 90s. Yes. And so I could sort of feel, hear that, you know, and, um, you know, hear, hear like a narrator. The, the unforgiving universe, the cold, careless universe. Run, Lola, run. It does not matter. <laughs> something Jesus. like that yeah i know um uh, that says so much about me though and i think maybe you are nihilistic i, I kind of am at yeah. <laughs> i try to be optimistic i try to be like a hopeful romantic type and man my cynicism just does not want to be entirely tapped down and shut away in a box <laughs> i try um and i think maybe that shows you know the in that way the movie reveals more about the person watching it than it does itself mm. which is interesting i really loved the opening credits from the pendulum to the ticking clock mm -hmm. um to us going through this huge crowd and your stops on certain people who are going to play parts in the story mm -hmm. um but once the animation part of the opening credit begins <laughs> it has a kind of and i i say this um this way because i saw the film i'm about to compare it to first it has a, like a scott pilgrim quality which means scott pilgrim took it from run lola run i get that mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and if if that was indeed an influence on edgar wright he would probably be the first one to admit it he's very good about stuff like that I've not seen him mention it, but then again, I've not seen him not mention it or deny it either. So Yeah, no, Run, Little Run was fantastic. And as I am a big alias watcher, the first time I saw that flaming red hair, I was just <laughs> like, Sydney, mm, that's why you donned red hair when you went to Germany. <laughs> yes. That, okay. I'll admit that that was like the one thing when an alias first aired, I watched that pilot episode and I saw that her in the wig and everything. I was like, Arr. and I got, and that was younger, crankier me. Yeah, this is me mellow. Remember, um, I used to be much crankier and I know you don't believe that. Um, no, as I'm starting <laughs> to get to know you more, I absolutely believe it. Yeah, I was a complete son of a bitch. <laughs> but that's what kind of made me, well, that it didn't really grab me in other ways. And I feel like I need to go back and rewatch the show at some point. And I, yeah, you're over there nodding v viciously. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that was like 
again, I, I was like, ugh, you got to be kidding me. Because I had seen Run Lola Run first. And so I kind of copped an attitude when I saw them. You know, I didn't want to see it as paying an homage to to the movie. I saw it as ripping it off in in uh, putting her in the red wig and everything while she's in Germany in like that opening uh, pilot episode. Well, first off, it's a good way to blend in. I mean, it's the show is about a spy, but, mm-hmm. you know, she's kind of gone rogue here. She is working against a ticking clock in the first episode. Um, and it does have to do with a spouse. So, like with Manny, we are dealing with Sydney's love. So, putting her in the red wig and having her use that to get through airport security under a false name works. And then once you're in Germany, you blend into the crowd. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um. So there is a little bit of an... It's not a complete ripoff. It is sort of paying an homage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I understand that. But, you know, cranky, you cranky me 20 years ago or 18 years ago or whenever, you know, uh, whenever Alias first premiered, yeah, it was like... Um, but that's part of growth and let's circle back to this though do you think that as lola was restarting was she learning from the the previous experience or was the filmmaker taking us back to a juncture in her life and then giving us three different timelines to look at kind of like almost like sliding doors i haven't seen sliding doors you know this I know, I'm, but you're familiar with the the concept of that, right? A little, yes. We uh, we did have a discussion once when I was coming up with a story, and you're like, "Oh, this reminded me of Sliding Doors." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> True. The first couple of times, it felt like there were things. It's really hard to explain. I'm thinking. I'm sorry. Um, it feels like everything was new all over again. But it also feels like there are things that she learned from, from the previous trip. I'm going to say with a definite that every single time was a completely new experience to her. She did not have any ideas of what was about to happen based on the previous one. Um, The only person that I saw who actually knew anything from the previous round was the security guard. And is that why we see him in the uh, the opening segment of the crowd and he's the one with the soccer ball? And he's talking to all of mm-hmm. us? Yeah. I so, think he is supposed to be Chance itself. Interesting. Interesting. He's a, he's a kind of like a, I don't want to say a magical creature within this storytelling, but he's a some type of supernatural creature in this storytelling that is he the one who's he's rewinding a, he, and resetting he's Lola? a human manifestation of an idea okay of luck of chance of hope um because there's that moment where he looks at lola in the third round and says so you finally got here 
That's right. Yeah. Okay. I liked. Okay. I am really liking this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm in. I don't want to say he's pulling the strings, but he is watching it all unfold. He's more more of a passive observer who. Yeah. Whose mere presence is causing this, or yes. I don't know, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I much. mean, I don't want to turn this into like let's quantify his superpowers or anything like that, but yeah. <laughs> okay, I I I really like this. I'm just kind of thinking think, about this. Think of it like yeah. a, a god who sits amongst his creations and watches, knows what has happened, knows what is about to happen. But every now and then likes to give you a little jab with a needle. Not with a knife, with a needle. And say, mm-hmm. so you finally got here? Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, I knew you were coming all along. Um. Okay. Now, let me ask you this, though. Um, mm-hmm. This is not just about three different uh, journeys that this character takes. It's also about the various ways that her interactions with people cause their lives to go in multiple different directions. Yeah. I'm thinking mostly like the the, the older woman with the, uh, pushing the baby. Uh, All of them. Yeah. And it's so strange that you see them go on just like vastly different paths. The biker. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that incredible. It's like, are you saying just like if you had interacted with somebody, you know, 10 feet either way on, on the street, their life is going to go in so, so many different weird directions? Or is it just that that this person has all these multiple potential uh, futures, potentialities for them ahead of them? And it's always going to be dependent on those choices that they make. The story is in a weird way about fate. Kind of like. I don't want to compare this to serendipity, but it has that idea behind it mm-hmm. of, you know, fate sends us little signals and it's how we interpret them that decide whether or not we're happy. So, yeah, I, I feel like if you run into someone, you know, maybe 10 paces short of where you could have run into them. It can change the trajectory or not, but you you will never know. True. That, I think, is in a way sometimes frustrating as you're living your life. You're like, well, I'm here, but what if I had done X, Y, or Z differently? I do that all the fucking mm-hmm. time. I think we all do as humans. Yeah, I mean, I kind of trace back everything that I am now to one moment in a bar with some friends when I met uh, my my soon to at the time soon to be girlfriend because we hit it off great and we started dating uh, her name was Laura and when she was working um, you know picking up a little extra cash working as a waitress at another bar and that's where the uh, owner was starting up a music a regional music magazine that she wanted to do and laura told me about it i went to like the first meeting and that's where really my writing career started and for everything from that point on follows a certain progression of i go there 
I meet uh, one of the writers who was uh, a local writer for our local newspaper here in Wilkesbury, uh, who's a the music and a feature writer there, and he recommended me to the uh, the editor there at the time as a potential correspondent, freelancer, and. It just kept those were like those very early steps of my journalism career. I think and so much of that, you know, so many things that have happened there have all led me to having you plopped on my couch and us doing this podcast as part of Film Buff Online. And if it wasn't for the fact that my friend Frank came over to me in uh, this bar and said, Rich, I need your help. Um, talking to this this woman over here, and we can't remember all the lyrics to "Shock Treatment." And I'm like, "Wait a minute! There is a there's a, there's a attractive blonde woman over there who wants to know all the lyrics to "Shock Treatment." Thank you, Jesus! And then I was over there, um, <laughs> and and it turns out, you know, she had, you know that's where you know she had seen the Twin Peaks movie, and then you know everything. It was like all these weird little th- elements kind of clicked yeah, together, I, and. I, that's when, if I had to look back, that's when my life shifted to where it is now. I don't see it. I don't see me getting here any other way, really. I think mine was the first day I watched an episode of Doctor Who in 2013. Okay. Because it feels like everything after that kind of built out of Doctor Who. Um, Doctor Who got me back into acting after... Um, I guess you could say a mental breakdown in my senior year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doctor Who uh, led me to a local movie theater where I met you just <laughs> by chance. True. Um, Doctor Who led me when I said back in the theater. I mean, it That's... it allowed me to audition for Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. I had seen Doctor Who's Christmas Carol mm-hmm. and then saw that Music Box was going to be doing a version of a Christmas Carol. And I'm just like, That's you know where you what? met your husband. Yes. So... Doctor Who literally changed my fucking life. That's that is a perfectly reasonable way to look at it. And and I understand completely. It's, you know, and there's you know, thousands of little things along the way. Like if you had decided I don't want to do uh, you know, this theater's version of Christmas Carol, uh this theater over here is doing another Christmassy thing that I is interesting to me more. Mm-hmm. Boom. You would still be roughly on that same path, maybe. It would we have still would have met, but maybe you wouldn't have met your husband or <laughs> or whatever. You know, or if you had gone this way, you know, you would have met your husband a year later at another theater thing. And maybe I would have already lost out the chance because he might have been with someone else. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I yeah, Doctor Who literally fucking changed my <laughs> life. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and thanks to you, I mean, we've been able to meet some of the people from Doctor Who. So that's just maybe the universe's way of paying of me back, paying you back, or <laughs> saying thank you for paying attention to this and uh, <laughs> to the hint. So now here's Karen Gillan to talk to for five. And minutes. here's Matt Smith twice. Yes. <laughs> and you you got you got Jenna. <laughs> yes, I did get to meet Jenna. Um, that's but the one I wanted to meet. I, I was acting as your emissary, though. Yeah, you were. I, you got, were. I got the autograph for you, and I relayed what you wanted me to relay to her. Mm. And she was very, um, very appreciative. Mm. <laughs> so so I think that's really what uh, Lone Lola <laughs> runs about. 
but it's <laughs> sorry i turned into a seal there for yeah. a second and i have no idea why <laughs> but i think that's really what like run lola runs really about mm-hmm. it's about you know all those random things that shape us and maybe to appreciate those things and maybe to be you know thankful that you know sometimes some bad luck happens along the way but it's you know how you react to it and everything and let's face it this movie is hella stylish yeah (laughs) yeah it is Mm -hmm. and i would even say yeah things change even in the animation just ever so slightly that dog starts barking i'm tripping i fall down the stairs the dog starts barking and i hell with you i jump right over you because i don't give a crap Mm -hmm. and and just you know just that that little moment Mm -hmm. determines how you know quickly she gets out of the building you know is there you know five seconds or ten seconds either way and that compounds Mm -hmm. all the way through each one of those uh those cycles those runs by the way Hmm. i give her so much credit because there's a lot of running sequences in this scene in this film and she's doing them in doc martens yep oh there's on the uh, on the oh. Blu-ray, there is a commentary track, and I listened to part of it. And she talks a lot about how, yeah, I had to do a lot of running on this. <laughs> um, and and I give them credit too because there are certain things that her, her cardio must have been hella good. <laughs> <laughs> there are certain things that repeat over and over that um, you know, do sync up each time. The, I'm thinking mostly of that crane shot starting on the subway and then coming down as she comes running into frame mm-hmm. and is running under the tracks and then they kind of pan and follow her. Um, you know, that is always the same. But, you know, things that lead up to it and things that, you know, follow after it aren't. So it's interesting that there's still like these little touchstones that they always hit. Like she turns that corner and... Maybe the the bum with the money is there. Maybe the bum with the money isn't there. What's great about that, too, ultimately, is I think because, you know, the first one lays out the stakes. Mm -hmm. If she does, makes the wrong choices, she's going to wind up dead. And that's just not like a theoretical thing you think of as the audience member. You know it's a possibility because they show you it happening. So, like, that second time, I think, is the more anxious run. Because you know one possible very bad endpoint for her. And she kind of get. Then it's like the second one is like, ah, damn it. And finally the third one. The second one is what really got me was, okay, she got there just in time. Thank God. And as he's walking back across the street, ambulance hits him. Talk about irony. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and the way that they did that, I was like, oh, (laughs) shit. (laughs) It wasn't like a splatter guts and he didn't go comically flying through the air. Mm -hmm. It was literally, bam, right over the top of him. Yes. And I just watched his body do an L shape as they ran over him. And I was like, this is long before. Yeah, this is 20 years ago. So this is before it became um, 
kind of like the go-to quote-unquote shock moment of having somebody just hit by a by some kind of vehicle that that barges in out of frame like be it a bus or a train or whatever and long you know certainly long before that trope started to become parodied Mm -hmm. so yeah that's like one of the original uh vehicle slams and Damn, does it work? It really I, does. I think it works now too. Twenty years later, Hence with why all that my baggage, reaction the, was yeah, exactly. Oh shit! <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think so. Yeah. So like structurally, you get oh okay. Uh, stakes are she could die. Oh crap! Stakes are he could die. That's not good either. And then so that third run, if you're you know kind of not watching, you know what. Yeah, the time elapse of the entire film is on you know, on the on your DVD or your Blu-ray player or whatever. You you don't know. He's like, okay, how are, are is she going to get her happy ending this time, or is this going to be really fucking nihilistic at the end and tell you, nope, you never get a happy ending. How does this film end? And that energy I think builds up, and that anxiety I think builds up. I think it's 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 a miracle of a little film because there's no other uh, parallel to what they're doing here. Okay. So you can't even you can't even bring your experience as a moviegoer in and say, oh, okay, this is kind of like this, so it's probably going to play out like this. You have no idea. It's such a unique structure that I think works so well in its favor. Well, here's I have I have a question for you. Okay. Since we're doing ifs and whats, what if when she hung up that phone in the beginning, she never started running? She just said the hell with him. No, what if she or, spent too, so much time trying to figure out what to do that she missed the shot because she couldn't figure out something to do? What do you think would have happened to him? Um, He probably would have gone into the grocery store to hold it up and wind up getting shot by the uh, security guy or something. Something f- falling from that point of action. And... She would have arrived too late. I think, you know, she starts running, and I think she's, ultimately, she's, it's all a straight line from where she is to where he is. And the bank, fortunately, is not too far of a deviation off of that line. Mostly, I'm surmising that because the film never shows us, shows her backtracking. I mean, it could be kind of like off to to the side, and then, you know, she kind of goes like, at a 45 degree angle away from, you know, the straight line between her and him to the bank and then, you know, making it a triangle. But it's never a case where she like runs south to the bank and then has to run back north past where she started to, you know, go another 50 blocks or whatever. Mm. They don't, they don't establish that kind of a geography to it. No. Um, in fact, they don't establish much geography to what she runs at all. And I'm assuming maybe if you don't live in that city, you're n- it's maybe supposed to be intentionally a little confusing. And it's something I'm not I actually haven't thought about until right now, you know, how the geography in that works. And I'm thinking that um that's not important. <laughs> no no it's film it, it's usually not important yeah but usually it they'll they'll try to take a moment to establish some of that to give you a sense of what the surroundings are and i think maybe not giving us that 
helps build the anxiety of it because we don't know how close she is or how far away yeah or how far away and that helps add to the ticking clock can we talk about just for a second my favorite moment in the entire film sure what is it the second i think it's the second it's either the second or third round when she runs out of the bank to be met by a slew of cops (laughs) with their guns pointed at her and they're like girl Get out of the way. Go on. Get out of the way. They don't realize that she's, she's the fucking robber. Yeah. <laughs> which which says so much. It's it says so much about um perception of other people that they're like, well, obviously this girl with the freaky hair color can't be a bank robber. Even though she has a bag with like money in it and everything. And I think it's just, I mean, it's a great comedy moment. And again, you're, there's so much tension that builds up in each thing. and There's a release and everything that it's nice to have in the middle of that segment, that release there. Yeah, because that's part of the that's part of the tension is that, oh, my God, is is it going to take too long? Is she going to get caught? Is someone going to end up dead? And then you come out aside and you're you're met by all those cops uh, with their guns pointed at you. And you're like. Oh God! Oh God! Oh God! I'm not making out of here. This is where it's over. Yeah, because because all you know so far about the rules of this movie is it, it can she, fucking change. She can she can be shot and yeah. killed because that's what happened the last time, and then they subvert that so comically, and she's like, um, uh, okay, I'm out. Bye, you know, and she takes off, and it's <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. But even like small things like. Does the ambulance smash through that pane of glass or not? Yeah. Um, you know, and again, I mentioned this before. You know, what happens with like the the woman pushing the baby carriage, and those different things? I, it's always you know, I always every time I watch it, I always pick up like one or two things. I was like, I don't think I noticed that before, and uh, it's 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 just a fascinating fascinating film. It's such a good movie. It really is, guys. If you lied to us and you didn't take the break and go watch the movie and then come back, uh, I would suggest, why are you still listening to us? Yeah, first go all, watch this movie. Give yourself a case of amnesia from of just covering listening to this episode so you can watch Run Little Run Fresh. Go watch it. Enjoy it. And then come back. Okay. But I think that about wraps us up for this week. Remember, you can find us online at bigpicturepod.com, and we are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So either use the link in the show notes post or head directly there, search and hit subscribe. And if you like what you're hearing, give us a positive review, because that always helps us connect with new listeners. We'll be back next week with a review of a brand new film coming out, one which I've seen already, Natasha has yet to see, and I will probably rewatch it with her. Mm. And that is... The big John M. Chu adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights. And that will be right here on the Big Picture Podcast. 